My name is Rick Kleffel, and welcome to the show. Today we're talking with Ira Schur, whose first novel, Gentlemen of Space, is a compelling story of the American space program, created from the memories of a boy only nine years old when his father journeys to the moon. Welcome to the show, Ira. Thanks. Your novel is set in 1976 and tells the story of Apollo 19. But there was actually no Apollo 19 mission, was there? Well, not exactly, no. (laughs) It's, uh... I mean, one of the nice things about the Apollo missions is I think few people remember exactly how many there are now. There were quite a few, and people remember landmarks, but uh, they don't quite remember where they broke off. And if I tacked a 19 on, they'd probably remember 20 wasn't in there, but 19 might slip past. So um, what happens? How does this uh, boy's father get on the Apollo mission? Well, he wins a uh, a writing contest that NASA throws, and uh, it's open to the general public, and he becomes, through this, the first ordinary man sent into space, the idea being that it's a kind of a, a public relations push on NASA's part to get people interested in a space program that was running out of money at the time. Tell us what happens next. Uh, well, he runs away or gets lost, depending on who you're asking, and uh, basically vanishes, and the mission is forced to return without him. So a lot of what the book is about is the sort of aftermath of somebody who disappears on the moon and everyone that surrounds them. Now, in the 10 years stretching from 1966 to 1976, the space program flowered. Were you one of the boys building the model spaceships? Yes, I was. I think I think just about every boy who was, uh, oh boy, between the ages of, you know, five and, and uh 17 at that time was building model spaceships of some sort. Um, It was pretty exciting. And it's, you know, if you look around now, you can see that we've really never done anything quite like that since. We don't put people on the moon anymore. No, we don't. And it's a shame. Those years offered a chance for fathers and sons to enter into a unique relationship with one another and the nation via the space program, didn't they? Yeah, I think that that's right. It it was a kind of a, a bonding experience for a lot of people. How does this work in your novel? Well, in the novel, a lot of what uh, is happening to Jerry Finch, who is this first ordinary man to be sent into space, uh, is is a kind of a fabulous thing for his child. It's uh, in the way for Georgie, who's the little boy. It's the most exciting thing he could imagine possible, and it's happening to his own father. And his father uh, tells him about it, uh, actually often from the phone where he, he calls from uh, from the moon. Yeah, his fa- he, the boy's getting phone calls from the moon, which doesn't quite jive with the reality we all share. Not exactly, no, no. But tell us about Georgie's reality. Well, Georgie's reality is, it's, I mean, he's nine at the time. It's being told by somebody, you know, substantially later in time. Uh, and so it's a voice which is a mixture between a child's voice and, and an adult's voice. But it's uh, it's the perspective of somebody quite young. Uh, and his reality is that his father is missing on the moon, but is calling him. Um, and he calls him, uh, oh, perhaps four or five times during the novel. I actually cannot remember offhand. But uh, but he, even when everyone else believes his father is dead, is fairly sure his father is still alive because he gets these phone calls from him um, way past the point where any person should actually still be alive and breathing on on the moon. Now, fathers and sons also came together or were torn apart during those years by Vietnam, and that's an aspect in your novel as well. Yeah. Uh, well, it's the novel is really set at a time uh, well, just after the Vietnam War when I think a lot of what I'm exploring in the novel has to do with heroes. And so the novel is set at a time uh, when people were really 
we're having a hard time with uh, searching for kind of new heroes for the country. Um, people had a hard time with the idea of the heroic after the Vietnam War. And so this kind of falls in an era, in a sort of a vacuum era, uh, you could say. Yes, the, but the space program and the war created sons and some heroes for the entire nation. Every, the entire nation could look upon these people and think, these are my sons, these mm -hmm. are my heroes. Now, um, you clearly love the space program and all that it inspires stands for, and it also inspires a great sadness in you. And it's not just because of the human loss of human life. Could you talk about the wistfulness that permeates your book for this bygone era, for the <laughs> the time of when we walked on the moon? Oh, it's a. I mean, it's uh, it's the kind of thing which is so fantastic. It almost seems like a fairy tale again, um, just as it did beforehand that anyone could ever walk on the moon. Uh, and there's there is something very tragic about that, uh, you know, that we've sort of we've done this this amazing thing, which turned out to be, in a way, a kind of a one shot deal, um, and people lost interest in it. I mean, after people got to the moon, it turned out that the astronauts were really just collecting moon rocks, and people couldn't be as fascinated with that as they were with the Cold War, you know, race into space. Uh, that was such a focus for a while. And the first few missions were a great focus, but, uh, you know, at the time the novel is set, NASA had stopped the program basically because there was no money left, there was no public interest. So there is something really tragic about that. Now, J.G. Um, Ballard wrote a series of stories collected in a book called Memories of the Space Age, where he theorized that the human race is not evolutionarily capable of space travel, and that all attempts to do so will just wither away. Do you feel that humankind is capable of space travel, that ever-enduring, ever-expanding Wild West frontier that we see in science fiction and the popular media? Uh, I, I would almost say that uh, we're incapable of not <laughs> having space travel, um, though it's a compelling vision. I mean, I think that one of the things Ballard points out is is really that that there there's a kind of dual pull in here, um, and obviously... Space travel was not as simple as we believed it would be, uh, and it was not the kind of thing that could infinitely excite people, I think, the way that at one time it was thought it could. Um, it's turned out to be much more complex. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a part of the human mind, space travel, so. The dawn of the space age was also the bloom of the first electronic and print mass media, and you deal with that quite a bit in your book. Could you talk about your feelings about that and how it plays out in the novel? In the role of media and the yes. way media enters it? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, media changes people's lives. Um, and often in a disaster scenario, it uh, media actually has, I think, as great an impact on, on the survivors' lives as, as does the, the sort of the tragedy itself. Uh, and in this situation, you can really see what happens when media sort of descends on a group of people for the best sort of with the best intentions at the beginning, but often kind of losing a sense of uh, of humanity, of the of the thing that they're they're studying in the process. Now, in a sense, the sons of space gave birth to the sons of the television and print journalists, and the cult of national celebrity was launched with the space program. Yeah, it was certainly, you know, we think back it's it's one of the reasons why in this in this novel uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin form kind of have substantial roles is that they really are you know they're 
among our kind of most basic icons, um, you know, sort of along with Elvis and kind of people who came in at the beginning of um, at the beginning of really electronic media, um, people who you know were recorded or filmed or all of those things, they are, you know, they're so high up in the public consciousness that they, they in a way they have a role which is which is kind of of like a, a primal hero of some sort, and it's one of the reasons why they're so important uh, to the story, um, you know, to Jerry Finch. Now, tell us what happens when they return without Jerry Finch. Well, uh, they they come back and uh, they don't take their suits off. Um, you create a, a fabulously, uh, just a wonderful, surreal scene of astronauts toddling around apartment blocks. Well, I think when I was writing the novel, I knew that I wanted the astronauts there in their suits, even before I knew exactly why I wanted them there in their suits. Um, you know, it was just a part of the way it came together. I knew I wanted a little boy looking up at the moon at some point and seeing his father there, and I knew I wanted these astronauts on Earth in their suits. Um, you know, and it, I kind of also play that off of off of the Vietnam era, which is that there's a there's a certain kind of a survivor syndrome that happens um, to these people who are coming back and who have to leave somebody behind, and they feel as if they can't actually properly return that they're still in that other atmosphere. Very interesting. Now, mothers and daughters also play an important role in Gentlemen of Space. Mm-hmm. Um, you say you have two very distinct types. You have uh, a Jackie O, uh, a rather uh, frosty and distant mother, and then you have a much more immediate teenage girl. Yeah, and they're you know they they uh, they come to uh, what they sort of. They lock horns during the book, um, you know, over the objects of their affection, over the object of their affections, I should say. Now, what the main um, themes of this book that I found was the, the role of memory in creating a world and creating fiction. Could you talk about the role that memory plays in Gentlemen of Space? Well, it is. Uh, it's an it's a novel that's all told through memory, and it's you know sort of doubly layered in that it's uh, it takes place when the narrator is nine, but it's told substantially later, um, and it's really, you know, it's a kind of it's a eulogy of sorts. Um, but it also depends at the end on whose memory, um, really, you see the book is lying in, because um, you're left with you're left with some choices. I love without the, giving that away. Yes, I I, I love the ambiguity. Mm-hmm in this novel um, when you're going back and forth between the strict nine-year-old's vision and the older man's recital of that. Could you talk about how you created that prose tension between those two points of view? Well, the tension's almost built in between those. Um, I mean, it it depends on sort of in what way you're talking about that because there, there are points where where the point of view becomes a bit shifty um, through that. Um, but one of the things, I think, for me that kind of builds in a certain amount of tension in looking at memory and in looking at it through different eyes is that people construct narratives for their lives naturally, and the narratives are not necessarily true, but they're, they're things that people need. Um, and if they don't have them, then their lives really crumble and they can't see a focus for their lives. And so in this book, in a way, you have... You have two narratives that are running sort of in a stream together. Um, and they're both 
important. Uh, and they might be exclusive of each other or they might not. Um, but you have both of them there at once. It's a fascinating piece of uh, prose writing because you show memory to be an act of the imagination and an act of creation. Could you talk about the narrative act of memory? Memory is a narrative? Well, memory is a narrative. Um, well, the way that we do build memories is it's always after the fact. Um, we're returning to something and we're building meaning into it. And the way that we build meaning um, really has to do with things that we want as much as you know things that actually happened. Uh, and it's that sense of building something that you can build your life around then. And then a lot of that is, is what happens in this book and what, what this book is about, is what we would have wanted from memory. And that becomes true for us then afterwards. So this book is about revising reality with memory, memorized narratives then. In a lot of ways it is. Not as a good or a bad thing, but just as a thing that we do. As a natural act of just as a function of memory itself, in mm -hmm. fact. Now, the space program still plays a vital part in American life, though not as vital as it used to. You've created a history that never was that deals with the space program, yet your novel doesn't read anything like science fiction. Um, could you talk, but it has lots of aspects of science fiction. You're talking about the space program. You have some very surreal things that happen mm -hmm. with the phone calls from the moon, um, astronauts in the apartments. How did you manage to do that and not get this thing slapped between a six ninety nine paperback with a garish orange cover? <laughs> <laughs> well, probably a lot of it is that uh, it doesn't take place on the moon. Um, while there are scenes that do take place on the moon, they take place through, for instance, very powerful telescopes, um, sometimes suspiciously powerful telescopes. I thought that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my more... Uh, one of the things I most enjoyed about the book was the f seeing the footprints on the moon. I take it that's not something that uh, we're going to be doing with our uh, tele backyard uh, astronomy N telescopes. Not next year, no. But one of the things that is fun in playing with something like this is that there is always a, a kind of fine line for people between what uh, where the science fiction begins and where it ends. And there, there are sections of this that people might assume are science fiction that are not. And then there are sections of this which actually are, um, you know, pure fantasy um, that that are close enough that some people don't know. My wife, for instance, didn't know that telescopes couldn't do that. Um, and then when I talk about the Gemini missions and the idea of dropping a man from um, basically from low <laughs> orbit uh, to Earth with, a, with the assistance of retro rockets, many people assume that that is in fact uh, a bit of fantasy, but that was in fact part of the original plan when they were trying to figure out how to get astronauts back to Earth. So there, there are a lot of hazy moments in this. Well, there's a, a recent book by George Dyson, I believe, about our plan to launch a nuclear-powered spaceship with atomic bombs. That, that re, it's a, a whole project called Project Orion. They, their idea was they wanted to put a spaceship in space that was the size of a nuclear submarine. And they actually built a building in San Diego that was as big as the, the thing they wanted to put up. Mm -hmm. And... You read the book, and it does read like science fiction. You go, "This is—is is this alternate history?" Right, but it's real, huh? It's real. Yeah. <laughs> um, your book also has some aspects of alternate history. Are you influenced by some of the science fiction genre, even though you yourself don't? The book doesn't read like that. Well, probably at some time I have been. Um, I mean, it was science fiction was very important to me growing up, uh, and I think it's undoubtedly 
something which is which has remained important to me. Um, it's not generally what I read um, anymore, but it's one of these things. It's kind of it's just a part of me. The space program, the space program itself, is in a way is a similar thing. Now, what are your feelings about the place and importance of genre fiction, from mystery to SF to horror to romance? Well, as we were talking about, I think before, um, I mean, one of the things I like about this is it's become very blurry. Uh, a lot of these categories, which seemed at one time very clear cut, are no longer so clear cut anymore. We were talking about Jonathan Lethem. Um, and how, I mean, he's kind of a case, you know, par excellence of, of someone who's been tremendously successful at blurring that. Um, not much, not so much for himself because I don't think it was, uh, it was ever clear cut definitions for him, but, uh, certainly for the reading public. Now your prose style is very personal and really evocative. It's like listening to somebody's confidences. Could you tell us how you achieve that feeling of just intimacy? Huh, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can. It's It often feels, well, I mean, part of the pull for me in writing this is there are parts of it that feel very far away, like they're being told by somebody who is at a tremendous distance uh, from all of the characters um, as if they're up on the moon. And then there are parts of it that feel very close. Um, and that was, I think that in a way just has as much to do with me, and it was one of the things that went into shaping the book. Um, how do you pack your prose with emotions? Because it's a very emotional book. Every scene seems to be burst on the edge of bursting. But pull it back from pathos and soap opera. Um, well, I I think it's in a way it works from being pulled very far back and then trying to get as close as I can um, to those emotions. I, I think if I had started the other way around, I would have wound up with a disaster. Um, but in a way, I start at the distance. I start with the distance, and then I get in. I try to get in closer. Now, you've written fiction for the radio program, This American Life. How does radio voice play off your written voice, and how do they intertwine? How do they? What's the relationship between those two? Um, well, I mean, the piece that the piece that was on This American Life, and the piece unlike the piece that will be coming up, was not written for This American Life, and it was actually written for paper. But um, in whatever I do, um, I, I tend to read it to my... It's it, Reading it to myself is part of part of my process, and so I do think a lot about the cadence of things. Um, and I think a lot about... I, I just think about something as if it was being read to me, and certainly in something like this where you have a voice that comes across the phone um, that is... Uh, sort of set apart and italicized in the book as a voice unto itself. It's it's something that I have to be very conscious of is how those words sound as spoken words. Your book does really seem to demand, in some ways, it's very poetic and it has a a, a heard feel. You you read it almost as if somebody's telling you the story sitting in the room. It's like you're sitting there telling us the story. Now, could you talk about the difference between the listening experience? and the reading experience? Hmm. Well, they're, for me, they're, they're really very different things. Um, and I, when I do think about, when I do think about books, they're very personal for me. Uh, and readings are, they're interesting, but they're also always a little bit funny for me because it is a very, for me, it's a close experience. Um, I like the idea of being, of a book being a very small private space. 
And so when it becomes a public space uh, and when it becomes something that's read out loud, it's different. And I think for me, what I do identify with is that is that hermetic space of one person or one person reading aloud to another person. Now, what writers inspired you to start writing? Where did you start and what what brought you to the writing life? Um, oh, I don't, I don't even know what brought me to the writing life. Uh, it's, you know, there are a lot of writers that um, that I love, but it's it, it was something that happened slowly without me really paying very much attention to it. Uh, and then at a certain point, I realized that I would I would be writing and not doing other things. Um, what what writers do you read now? Um, if not science fiction, well, like a science fiction uh, so a writer who is who also kind of plays a hazy has kind of a hazy place would be somebody like Victor Palavin. Um, he's a Russian writer who writes uh, some fascinating books that are you could say cross genres. Um, he wrote a wonderful book on the Russian space program that somebody showed to me while I was writing this and uh, and started me reading all of his books uh, called uh, Omen Ra, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful tale about um, about Russia and how it sees itself in the space program. Um, he writes books with such kind of strange conceits as the idea that there is an inner Mongolia, uh, which exists as a state of mind instead of an actual location. Um <laughs> But I mean, there are a lot of writers, uh, historical writers that I uh, that I love. Also, um, I mean, people like Bruno Schulz. Um, I love Tristram Shandy um, by Lawrence Stern. That's one of my favorite books ever written. There's so many wonderful writers around. Uh, Dennis Johnson is is a tremendous writer. Now, what can readers expect next from you? Are you working on another novel? I am. Um, this this one does not involve space or space travel. It is about the Singer Sewing Company and about arson. Is it going to be as weird as this one? Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think about this as weird. It's. Uh, they're almost like writing a book is almost like having a dream and then taking it apart afterwards and seeing what the thing is that you've dreamed of, and uh, and so a lot of sort of fragments come out in the dream and then you try to see how they link up together, and uh, so right now I'm trying to link up the fragments and the bits and pieces of this and things that often seem fairly disparate and that don't necessarily relate come together um, and that's what makes it fun wow now i can see the dreamlike aspect of this book because it does seem like a, a an adult's dream of being a child and also within it the child sometimes seems to dream of being the adult there's a lot of child is the father of the man and man in this case the man is also his own father by the through the act of creating the the memories yeah i think that's right Thank you very much. We've been talking with Ira Schur about his novel, Gentlemen of Space. Well, thank you very much for having me.